and in that way, which I, I, I mean, if I can leave any listeners with one shred of things, if someone mentions something really hard and uncomfortable to you, maybe just ask if they want to talk about it. If you're in a position where you can hold space and really be there, because she could. Lisa Kiefhofer, and this is Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. This is a podcast where we dive deep into raw and authentic and vulnerable conversations about the realities of grief and loss. We do this so we can all get better at showing up for one another and for ourselves when it happens to us. Because, newsflash, none of us are going to escape this experience. As a trained narrative therapist, I understand that words and language are constitutive of our identity, of our experience, of our entire worldview. And yet there are some words that evoke so much shame, judgment, blame, even vitriol, that they make conversations feel completely off limits. And when we can't talk about things, when we can't process our emotions or make meaning of our experiences, That is, well, really problematic. Abortion is one of those words. Yes, I said that word. How are you feeling right now? What if I said a pregnancy terminated for medical reasons? Now what emotions come to mind? How about deliberate miscarriage? One in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime in this country. Are you doing the math? That means you know someone, or several people in fact, who have had this experience. And if you're saying to yourself right now, but I don't know anyone, yeah, as you're realizing, perhaps for the first time, you actually do. You likely don't know that because in this country, in our culture, and if we're being honest with ourselves, perhaps even in the way we speak or often whisper the word, tells women they're not safe to talk about their experience, let alone grieve the loss. Y'all, today's conversation has been a powerful and transformative experience for me, and I hope it will be for you too. I was joined in studio by a woman and incredibly special friend who, because of everything I just mentioned, is choosing to remain anonymous though she holds no shame about terminating her pregnancy, which she did for medical reasons. She knows there is judgment, perhaps from other family members, and likely vile and acidic reactions to come from some who want to shut down conversations like these. Well, by now you know I'm all about conversations, about showing up, holding space, and bearing witness to the experiences of others. In that act, we can all begin to find the language we need to make meaning of our experiences and begin to rebuild a new narrative that will guide us along our grief journey. I began by asking my guest what it means to her to be telling her story today. It it means everything, really. It means that it'll finally... um, be acknowledged and for so long it hasn't and it's been really hard and isolating so you know I have a a four-year-old now and I as a parent I've 
gone down the rabbit hole of research and brain science and you know you know we know so much more now about um what kids need to be resilient to like feel seen and heard and you know I'm trying to do my best to be there for her as she's growing up but you know I read kids books and I was like oh my gosh this is a place to all of us all of us we just want to be seen and heard that's it Love and belonging is in our neurobiology. It's in our DNA. Yeah, we're hardwired for it. Yeah. And you do that so well. Well, well, thank you. So I, I appreciate you're the that. only person I would trust this story with, really. Even though now, you know, who knows we'll hear it. But, um, yeah, it's safe. I feel safe. That's such an important word you mentioned because I think in so much of our pain and loss and grief and trauma and I know there are some distinctions to those words but also I recognize the many ways in which they evoke many of the same responses and at the heart of so much of that really is a lack of safety oh yeah right it's yeah. A, it's a because safety is really about I'm I'm knowing something to be true I'm knowing my heart and my body and my mind to be protected and I can predict that and I can trust that and a loss and a grief a trauma any of those experiences is really a revealing that in this moment I'm not safe and then the yeah. challenge often for losses and grief and trauma that are attached with shame culturally or otherwise yeah. means not only was that experience a ripping away of our safety, sense of safety, but the fact that we can't tell our story means we're walking around in the world feeling unsafe. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, does that resonate for you? What has safety meant? What did safety mean for you before this loss that we're going to talk about today? And what does it mean to you now? What do you crave about it, want to know about it? What's your experience of it? So, um, I'm an entirely different person now. It's it's changed the way I see the whole world. I always felt safe before, like nothing. My life was pretty smooth sailing. Never, I mean, now that I'm doing therapy, I've realized that there have been like small little traumas along the way, but nothing big like this that shook me. You know, I, I worked for nonprofits, like always just really wanted to give to the world. And right now... Things have been shaken so much that I just am focusing on <laughs> taking care of myself right now because I don't know that I have the capacity to give too much just yet. Yeah, it's, it's changed the way I see the whole world, you know, to have something just, like, taken from you that you never thought would ever be taken from you. Yeah. The narrative just got ripped up, like you say, the manuscript. Right? Our lives are, are a story or a manuscript, and these incidents are like someone just shredded up the manuscript. Yeah, they and, shredded it. And, then and then hand it back to you, by the way, and say, like, okay, well, just now go forward. Yeah, go forward. Make it up as you go along. And um, don't mention the fact that it's been ripped to shreds. Yeah. Go back to what you used to be like. Right. Go back to being the old character. Yeah. I've heard that from so many yeah. guests, no. you know, and I think some of the harm that happens again, out of good intentions, is that people expect us to still show up 
behaving as if the manuscript hadn't been written, as if our character hadn't been changed when you're taking this sort of script metaphor here. Yeah. And we, in some ways, don't want our character to have changed either, obviously. But now we don't have the lines in front of us. We don't have the backstory. Our backstory to our character has changed. And we are left to kind of rewrite it ourselves and sometimes with support from other people, but oftentimes in isolation from other people or in not competition, but sort of in contrast, in conflict with how other people might want to write our stories and write our narrative. Yeah. And we're also interconnected that it bumps up against their narratives too. And then, and then we're all just struggling to like make sense of what happened and who we are now and how do we relate and speak to each other and hold space when a lot of us were never, we never learned the tools and we never learned how to do that for each other. Yeah. And if we don't, we've talked, you and I have talked often and I write often um, in my daily invitations about how on earth are we expected to show up and hold space and bear witness to other people if we don't know how to do that for ourselves? Oh, yeah. It's hard. No one wants to feel pain. Oh, my God. And to your point, we're so interconnected that when we show up and hold space and we aren't prepared to really do that, when people share their stories, it's bumping up against our stories. And if we haven't yeah. really made peace yeah. with our stories and there's a rub there, it really takes us out of being present in that moment yeah. and, and being really a vessel or a vehicle to sort of hold hold their story. So yeah. I think that's the invitation to all of us. Um, and that's one of the things I've admired about you is that you've, you continue to sort of step bravely with courage and vulnerability into examining your experience and your story, what it means to you, how it's shaping your sense of yourself, what it means in terms of your raising your daughter and going forward. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you'll know, because you've listened, thank you, to all of the episodes of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, is I ask each of my guests to share a little bit about what your earliest memories of grief and loss are. What did that look like in your family? I'm particularly interested in sort of how did that show up in terms of behaviors, language, conversation? What comes to mind for you? Mm, Several things. Um, Growing up, we had dogs my whole life, and sometimes we'd have litters of puppies, but there was always dogs, so there was death you know, when they passed on, and it was um, always addressed in a very, like, straight, matter-of-fact way, you know, we're sad, and the dog died, and so we were always, we were never sheltered from that as children. My earliest memory of a person dying was my great-grandmother. I was in junior high, and I remember at the funeral, it it just sunk in that day that um, there's no coming back from that. Yeah. And um, my mom and my aunt were really great, and they just let me cry and absorb it all. And um, But my dad lost his parents, both of them, before I was born. He was in his early, early 20s. They died, like, within a year and a half apart, so I never got to meet him. And watching him, he never really spoke about them. Yeah. So that was modeled that you just keep going you just deal with it. You just move on. There was no, yeah, no opening of that. You know, most I got from that was through my mom. Um, but then, 
So my my great grandma who died was ninety nine. I mean, she you know, and so you know, when someone lives a really long life and they're ready to go, it's kind of people I think can make peace with that a lot easier. Um, I know um, an uncle of mine um, had been to Vietnam and had some really hard times. I know uh, one of his best friends died there, and that's pretty much all that was ever said. But there was a lot of anger that I could see and a lot of, like, numbing um, on his end. And I, and I was so curious about, like, what happened? Why can't we talk about it? And, you know, now, later in life, I've seen the Ken Burns documentary, and I get why it was so hard for them to talk about when they got back and how horrible things that they must have seen. And um, in processing my own grief, I... Um, got curious about where my body was holding on to things that I wasn't really aware of. And so I read The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, yeah. And I learned so much there about what happens. Um, that led me to do some therapy on my own. I wanted um, to do EMDR work, which maybe you can explain better than I can. Mm-hmm. But um, And then through that work, um, it kept coming back to my throat chakra like yeah because i knew i i still had something to say wow yeah there's so much there i thank you so much for kind of being really curious and exploring all the different ways in which grief manifested kind of in your inform informative years your growing up years you touched on some interesting themes that i think many of our listeners can probably relate to which is there were many kinds of losses in our family in our growing up lives yeah different people in our family modeled, maybe is the word I'm looking for, what grief looks like. And in your family, you had a mom and an aunt, it sounds like, who were, who were modeling, and I don't want to say better or worse, so I don't want to put labels, but your mom and your aunt were modeling, it's okay to express emotion, it's okay to talk about the loss, it's okay to talk about feelings. You had a dad who modeled we don't need to talk about it. It's a thing that happened. It's done. We need yeah. to move forward. Mm-hmm. You had this uncle who kind of maybe for his own, you know, existential well-being to sort of preserve himself, he didn't talk about it for lots of reasons, including what we might talk about later, just really, I think, is kind of the notion of disenfranchised grief. Yeah. Um, when you look back from this grief experience, which we're going to talk about now that you had in your adult life, when you look back to those different informative times in your growing up, do you see how it helped or hindered you showing up for yourself in this grief moment? And perhaps I'll add the question, was religion or spirituality at play in your growing up or in your adult life as you navigated this grief? Um, so... Religion wasn't really at play too much. Um, I would consider myself much more spiritual than religious. I grew up attending Methodist church here and there, but it was never anything um, major in our life. Um, I think I've come as far as I can in my journey um, with a lot more effort and ease without having a lot of religious baggage to, to, to 
wade through as as you will. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's been a benefit to me to process. May, can I ask? I wonder if what you're saying is that you see sometimes that religion, though it can be helpful for people in some ways in terms of navigating grief and your particular grief, if you had come from a deeply religious background, that might have actually gotten in your way of doing? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Gotten in your way of doing the grief work you needed to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I felt much freer to stand my ground and feel all the feelings and not feel judged. (laughs) Yeah. Next, I invited my guest to share with us what she feels is important to know about her experience of ending her pregnancy and the grief journey that she is now traveling, reminding her and all of us that it is in the naming and exploring of those experiences that we are able to begin to rewrite the narrative of our lives, to discover ourselves, our path, and often find connection with others who are able to hold our story sometimes perhaps because they have traveled a similar journey too. Yeah. So. I mean, it's the whole reason I'm here, really. Yeah. Um, so um, we lost our first baby. Um, it, when we found out from a phone call early Probably a Monday morning, I can't remember the day, but it was before I was getting ready to go for work. And it came from the doctor, which is never... It's <laughs> never a good sign when the doctor calls. Nurses, nurses call all the time, and that's fine. And uh, Yeah, the doctor called, and um, when we were f- first pregnant, um, we. Ch- I was 35 at the time, um, and so either I qualified for the advanced testing or we just opted to do so because knowledge is power in our opinion and um, so we did some genetic testing and we got the call that there was a severe abnormality Mm. chromosomal defect and um, we're presented with options of what do we want to do so um, the call came in I think I quickly got my husband over and we put the doctor on speaker and just talked about options and um, we immediately knew um, I think what we wanted to do because in in the decisions leading up to if we wanted to do the test or not the doctor just said you know really just think about like what would you do with any of these particular outcomes if you were to find out and my husband and I were driving home I remember and I said not that anything's going to be wrong, but if so, like, what do you think? And, and we both just said, yeah, I don't, I don't think we'd continue on. And so, but, you know, I never expected that. When you're, when you're first pregnant and they bring you in at eight weeks, they sit you in a huge circle with a bunch of other expectant parents, and they kind of give you the rundown of what to expect throughout your pregnancy, and a certain number of you will fail the gestational diabetes test. She gave some stats on that. and But by the time they bring you in for that circle, um, you're further along, so chances of miscarriage are maybe a little bit lower, even though they do still happen later. Um, so I just thought, like, oh, worst case, like, I'll get gestational, which, by the way, I did with my second pregnancy. But, um, 
Yeah, we just never saw that coming. And so when it happened, it was, uh, what are we going to do? And we, we kind of knew, but in the process of going through and finding the resources after the fact, and we went to do secondary testing, which came in another two rounds, and then we had to find a clinic that would um, perform the procedure because the doctor couldn't. It was in conflict of the the hospital where they um, practiced was a um, religious one, I forget, Catholic maybe. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so those were very difficult. Um, and I just, I have never been so devastated in my life to think that, like, I was in the position to say goodbye so early when I didn't want to, you know. But... It was the most loving thing we could have done for the baby, for ourselves, and and um, maybe I'm going to jump around a whole lot, but at the time we did the genetic testing, um, they asked if we wanted to know the sex, and I said, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't sure if we wanted to know beforehand or we wanted to wait till the baby was born or... Um, but I said, sure, if we're going to find out information, let's find out information. So it was in the file. But then um, once we got the call and we decided not to to continue, um, we I didn't want to know the sex. It, like, at the time, it was just going to be more painful and make it more real. And we were already so devastated as it was that I couldn't bear to know that. And I think that hindered... Um, a lot of my healing, like I wasn't set up in a way to grieve because, you know, it seemed like for the rest of the world, it was like, okay, well, that was painful and it's done, but like, now you can move on. And um, so fast forward five years later on the anniversary of the death, I, um, leading up to that, it just again, learn from helping my daughter, like, process her emotions and stuff, is that you you have to name it to tame it. That's an expression. Yeah. And I just thought, I, got, I have to find a name. I have to know, because it was so difficult to even talk about it, you know? Like, there was a baby before my current daughter, and, it, like, not having a name was so difficult. So um, I started doing therapy. I went through three different therapists. I'm on my third one now, um, and which was a better fit. You know, you got to find the right fit. Yeah, yeah. And um, I d so I did a lot of work. I did the EMDR work, kind of st straight out the go. And at the same time, I was reading a book. Um, oh, I forget the name of the author. It's called Spark of Light, and um, it was about a gunman who goes into an abortion clinic, and she tells the day in reverse, mm. um, hour by hour, but you get the backstory of everyone involved, and um, abortion is such a divisive topic, and I think a lot of our society and culture see it as in binary terms. It's Right, I either mean, good or bad, it, yeah. Yeah, well, the question is always, like, are you pro-choice or pro-life? Like, there is not really a third option in there, right? Like, 
and and that book was amazing and that kind of showed the complexities and that like we our world is all shades of gray everything but boy do we just do everything we can in our culture to make everything binary yeah binary and 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 going through that experience i mean i get holding polarity and duality in my head but it was the first time in my life after I had the procedure, I left, and I told you it's the first time I've ever felt, like, in my body, in my bones, in all of my being, and I felt and. Yeah. Because I felt entirely shattered and broken, utterly, like, demolished and strong that I, like, survived it. And it was the oddest thing, but I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. Because I managed to get through something that painful and difficult. And, um, yeah, it was just, it's, it's opened me up in a way that I've never been before. Like, I feel Joey so much easier now. I mean, I've always um, liked Brene Brown, but I feel like all I can do is consume her information now, all of her books, all of her talks. got to meet her recently, which was unbelievable and um, amazing, and I just um, am so appreciative of all the work that she's put out there in the world to talking about shame, because my loss is... My form of loss is grief, but it's also really tangled in shame. Yeah. And from her, I know that shame can't survive being spoken. And it's one of the reasons why I felt like I wanted to speak up about it, because um, it's such a shameful topic. And um, people are really quick to judge. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm not sharing my name publicly on this broadcast is because um, we live in a world where it's not really safe to. I mean, there's so many trolls online that just leave nasty, nasty comments. And one of Brene's sayings is that if we share our shame story with the wrong person, they easily become one more piece of flying debris in an already dangerous storm. My guest and I went on to speak about the moments we've experienced where we trusted the wrong someone with our stories and the additional harm and wounds that caused us. I have been passionately studying and pursuing the experience of truly holding space and bearing witness for several decades now. As I read Parker Palmer's latest work, A Hidden Wholeness, I'm reminded of one of my favorite passages. The human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard, and companioned exactly as it is. When we make that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our respect reinforces the soul's healing resources, the only resources that can help the sufferer make it through. We struggle so much to do this for others, even when we acknowledge their right to feel grief and suffering, don't we? So let's imagine how rare it is for someone like my guest, who has experienced this type of loss that is contested by so many, to feel 
truly seen. What was the importance of that conversation you had with your husband? What has it taught you about having other what-if conversations with your husband or other important people in your life? Yeah. Um, well, so, so to your point, I, you know, was single. I didn't meet him till I was, like, 31 or so. And you keep hearing, like, things get harder to have babies once you get older. And, I, you know, right. I... The whole time I thought, you know what? I don't want to really give that a lot of energy. Like, I don't want to feed that fuel. And, and you know, I just don't want to believe it. But as I learned, like, there, there's some truth to the science behind it all. And not that, um, I mean, ours, our diagnosis happens all the time, too, to people who are younger. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't necessarily that. But I just didn't want to give it any... Yeah, but um, no. To your point, I mean, we had the conversation because I I wanted to definitely be sure that we were on the same page because if we weren't on the same page and we were forced with something, then that would have been a whole other thing to navigate and reckon with. Um, so to me, it was a matter of um, just healthy communication and and expectations going into something that was so life-changing. Was that the first time in your relationship where you had to have that kind of really, you know, hard conversation or kind of an aligning of your values and your and your thoughts on something? Uh, we're pretty aligned on values and things. That, um, and in terms of your comfort of even broaching subjects. Yeah, and yeah. It, it wasn't a hard conversation to broach with him okay. or I have it all. It was just like, okay, let's let's chat about this, and it wasn't that difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I do tend to want to, like, have the harder conversations with people in my life, and it's it's uncomfortable for them for a lot of reasons, too. Yeah. You know, because we're all carrying our emotional past with us and there are wounds that haven't healed. And if uh, sometimes we don't, we're not ready to go there. And uh, another reason why I'm doing this anonymously is because my grief story has been impacted by other people's grief story indirectly. But it's, it's, it's not my place to share their stories. Um, so, but it has impacted mine. Yeah. And I should not say but, I should say and. And it has impacted and, yours. Yeah. And I want to sort of tease that apart in a minute. I think I am curious to hear from you what has having that hard conversation taught you about having other card, hard conversations in the intervening Five years, you said it's been? Six years? Almost six, yeah. Yeah. What has it taught you about having hard conversations? Um, I, I mean, I just think they're necessary. I know they're not easy. I'm still learning the subtleties and figuring out ways to approach people when it comes to hard things. Um, and, you know, the... The biggest thing that I think I've learned is that if we can just talk about it, it doesn't hold the power over us anymore. Yeah. Just to name it, and it kind of dissipates. Like, 
you know, even now I feel myself like last night and this morning I'm kind of like, oh, I'm going to go talk about something like insanely I'm going to go vulnerable. talk about hard things. I'm going to talk about hard things. And my chest, like, is beating more and my, you know, I'm getting warm in my hands and a little clammy and um, I just told my husband, like, I'm real anxious and just the fact that I could name that emotion took so much work right yeah but it also in a good way yeah in a good way and and then it 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 settles it some more yeah you know i think the naming activity as you said is so powerful and i think in part um it takes away the power because really the sort of friction point we i think about this so my early training was as a narrative therapist so really the power of language yeah. and the power of language to be constitutive of our identity sure. like so that we are really just a series of stories that we tell others tell about us and that sort of constitutes our yeah. reality at all times so we're constantly writing and rewriting our story so i often think of our friction i call them friction points but sort of our stressors our worries yeah. Sometimes when we have feelings, as you said, in our body or in our minds that actually don't have a name, like you can't quite tease apart why you're feeling it. Yeah. It's because there, there's these stories that are playing in loop in our brains uh -huh. all the times. And we're not even connected to that. There's a story going on, but that story is eliciting a feeling. Yeah. And that story is telling something about you. You shouldn't, which we can talk about the word should. Yes. Um, you know, we, you shouldn't, you're not worthy, whatever those sort of backstories are. And so to name like you were ex explaining this morning, I'm naming my feeling and I'm recognizing that this feeling is connected to this story. Yeah. And the story for you might be, I'm going to share my story and other people might have judgments. Yeah. Other people might try to lay their shame on me, whatever. But yeah. that's, that's the sort of power that you take, that we all can take when we name something. Yeah. It's like we shine a light on the stories that are kind of playing you know, on loop in the in the dark, yeah. and we kind of bring the light to those stories. Well, we, yeah, we absolutely have to bring the light to it because, I mean, really nothing can heal in darkness, right? You need the light and you need the oxygen. Yeah, yeah. To be able to breathe and heal through things. And, and I think we, all of us, are carrying around wounds that need need the light of day. Yeah. So speaking of stories, we have a story in our culture. You alluded to this earlier, both on religious, political, that there's a real binary view out there about when life is life, around yes. a woman's you know, choice, around her body, about decision-making. There's all kinds of sort of vitriol on all sides about, about this topic. Yeah. And a lot of sort of attempts to be very binary about when is it okay to make certain choices at what stage in the pregnancy, for what reasons. Yeah. Yours was obviously a medical reason, but other people in the world choose it for other reasons. Correct, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that sort of cultural context laid down on your own ability to grieve? And I think you alluded to that there was somebody else in your family who had their own story and how their story was similar but different to yours yeah. and how that informed how you were able to grieve or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other people in my life, more than just one, that have been through a similar situation under similar circumstances um, and vastly different circumstances. And um, I feel like in terms of my grieving and healing process, it's been a little bit hindered in, in the ways where 
Um, There's still healing to be done for them, and so they could never hold the space for me because the the shame that is associated with any kind of terminating of a pregnancy is the same. I mean, Brene so brilliantly says, if you hold, put shame in a petri dish, the only thing it needs to survive is secrecy, silence, and judgment. And I don't know abortion definitely falls under that category. There might be other things, but that's... In this country, that is probably up there. That's the top. Yeah, Yeah. the top. And so even though people, you know, are find themselves in that position for a variety of reasons, we're still in the bucket of silence, secrecy, and judgment. Because, you know... There are other people in my life, too, that that don't have any um, pain or fear or trauma associated with having it, but the shame component is still there, meaning I feel freer to talk about these things. And, you know, initially when it happened, I didn't want to talk about it or or share the message very widely, Um, but, you know... I feel like I can now, and even if I gave permission for other people to share my stories, well, I don't know that they would because of the shame that they would then feel in sharing the story. Yeah. Nearly six years later, my guest and her husband still feel this was the right decision, and they don't personally feel any shame about their decision to terminate the pregnancy upon learning the news of the serious medical issues the baby would face. They are acutely aware of the shame others in their extended family and certainly in our broader community and U.S. culture have about the choice to end a pregnancy. So I asked my guest to explain how she sees that external shame showing up in her life. It shows up as silence. It shows up as, like, we're not going to tell... my grandfather because he talks to everyone all day long and he's a family gossip and you know at the time I didn't want that to happen but now I think like you know we'll get we'll get calls from our family that says your first second third cousin is going through a hard time they have cancer and their kids are little and like we openly share other people's struggles and hard things and hard things but no one was ever going to openly share our hard thing Mm. What does that mean to you? It sucks, you know? Yeah. It it means that there was just no support around it, you know? You started off talking about um, how the sort of silence about it really means you haven't been acknowledged yeah. for your loss. No, I just that's all I want just want to be acknowledged. I just want someone to say, like, that was really shitty and hard, and I'm sorry I had to go through it. That's it. Nothing else. That was really shitty, and it was really hard, and I'm sorry you had to go through it. And I think you bring up such important topic, and that is part of the, really, the reason I'm doing this entire show is that we have so many hang-ups again back to we have because we have our own learned beliefs 
And for many, the learned belief might be, well, this was a quote-unquote choice you made. Choice, right. So that you're not allowed, quote-unquote, which I mean, yeah. all these words I'm going to put quote-unquote around, because it was a choice, you aren't allowed to be sad. You yeah. aren't allowed to feel the loss yeah. and allowed to feel the grief, which is, of course, absolute bonkers. Yeah. Um, but that was your experience, I take it. Oh, yeah. 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 And so what allowed you to cut through that, to find voice? You talked a little bit earlier about um, the work you did in therapy and in, in, in EMDR and sort of noticing where where your grief and your pain and your loss was stuck. And you talked about mm-hmm. it sort of being stuck yeah. at the throat. Just stuck at the throat. Tell me a little bit about what that discovery was for you and how has it shaped how you are moving through the world and yeah, showing so up for yourself and also maybe showing up holding space and bearing witness for other people's voice. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Um, you know, I knew that, you know, I, I would get comments from, like, very dear friends, very well-meaning family members of, like, or why is this so hard for you? And and one day I was at dinner with some of my girlfriends who knew the whole story, and I just, I just stopped. I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know why I can't just, like, move on. Like, like no, no big deal. And that's when I thought, like, because something's not... I I haven't been able to process it and to fully integrate the story yet. And so I was kind of in the process of therapy. I hadn't found my current therapist. But that's when I started reading The Body Keeps the Score because I thought it's stuck somewhere in here. And, you know, I've done yoga for over 20 years, so I I know that we can't figure everything out with our head. Like, our bodies are really involved. And, like, my body was the vessel for this baby to come through and out and um your loss in particular was a very embodied loss it was I do an embodied think, loss I think all of our loss and our pain and our yeah. trauma of course live in our bodies yeah. and EMDR and other things yeah. that address that but your particular loss was a was a literal embodied it loss it was a literal embodied loss and um and for me alone right I mean my husband was there along the way but it was not the same thing for him no. No, I, I mean, other women who have gone through this understand. And, I, in fact, I made a dear friend who we connected over another reason, but we both, I knew she had a loss, and I mentioned the type of loss I had, and she's been through it, and it was like instant connection because she's been there. Like, she knew it. My guest shared with me that approaching the five-year anniversary of her loss She wanted to find out the sex. She wanted to be able to name the baby. Because she was coming to realize that, unlike other losses, she never had a chance to have a sort of, well, memorial. Next, she speaks openly about the narratives so many of us build in our heads about pregnancy and motherhood and how this experience of a pregnancy ending not in a live birth of a child shreds that manuscript to pieces. I had 35 years living up to the, the narrative of a story about like when I get pregnant and the way we first told our parents about it was I both of our um, mothers are very 
crafty and so I bought them little like quilt kits that they could make for the baby mm. and you know and we gave it to them on Christmas morning as a present and so and it would have been uh, like a tiebreaker baby you know like it would have been the first grandson from my parents and the first granddaughter for his parents so you know, there was a lot of narrative going into that for me for real and then when it was when it wasn't it was just like a smashing of all those dreams too, you know. Yeah. And I know, and I, I also know that, and our families were grieving as well. And so, you know, it was hard for them to maybe show up for me in particular. I can't speak for my husband as much, yeah. but because yeah. of their own grief too. Yeah, and I talk about that often because I think that's so true is that Sometimes the people who are able to show up for us and hold our stories are not necessarily the people that are closest mm. to us because right. yeah. they are also they have, their own. they have their own grief over there. Yeah. I mean, the grandmas had a story about their first grandson, and then they were yeah. trying to process the loss of that story. Yeah. I think doubly the reason those folks can't show up for us is because they care so much about us. Yes. And it's so very difficult to watch your child to watch your child, for instance, in this case be in pain and not yeah. want to fix to it. Fix it. Yeah. And as you and I have talked before, it's the fixing that in some ways is, or the attempt at fixing, because by the way, grief is not something that needs fixing, nor can it be fixed. No. And the attempt often by well-meaning, well-intentioned yeah. people to fix is actually damaging. Yeah, It's causing some of that unnecessary suffering and pain for those of us, because really in the fixing, what you're saying to somebody is, you're wrong for feeling that way. Yeah. You're making me uncomfortable. Yeah. And by the way, let's talk about this whole, we have a right to being comfortable, which is a really damaging narrative yeah. in my mind across all spectrums of conversations and topics. But um, so so often they aren't the people you know, who no. can, can do that. Yeah, and that's what I've learned. I've learned that some people can hold it and some people can't, and you got to find the ones that can. I do think that. I mean, um, I do think we end up meeting people in our lives because we are seeking kind of an opportunity to share and connect yeah. and hold that space. Um, my friend Autumn, who was on the show, as I referenced, was someone I met very, very soon after I lost my husband. Mm. And in many ways, even though I have very dear close friends, very, very close female friends, they all loved Eric, too. too. Didn't you know, and they you. loved me. Yeah. And it was so hard, I can for imagine, them, yeah. for them to watch me. And so in some ways, Autumn showed up and was such a gift in my life because she could sort of hold my pain without feeling the need to fix it herself yeah. or having to reconcile or having it. to reconcile her own loss over him is there one person in your life who you think you've learned who's been able to sort of show up and what does that look like what has there been an experience where someone said something to you or asked oh, you a yes, question yes. that made you feel like oh wow that's so revolutionary yeah and so important yeah, yeah yeah we were considering a move out of out of town and went to visit this new city, and um, I was just asking friends of friends, like, what do you know, where should we stay, what, you know, whatever. And a dear friend of mine says, oh, my best friend lives there. You should connect. 
Um, and I reached out to her, and we met one night for, for a drink, and we were just chatting about the area, and, she, you know, we have a similar friend. But really, I just met her that kind day. Kind of a stranger. Of, a little bit. And, um, and I mentioned that we had lost a, a baby before um, our current um, child. And she's the only person, and this was probably like four years into the, my journey after losing my first baby, that she said without any kind of like hesitation or it was just really natural. She just said, would you like to talk about it? No one, like, and I, I mention it often to people just because. Naming it? Na- I got to name it because not enough people know about pregnancy loss in general. Like, I, I'll never forget, and I'm so very grateful for this one um, colleague of mine. When I was younger, like late 20s, early 30s, and some people were getting married and having kids, and she just said, hey, she, I was talking to a few of us, um, and she said, hey, girls, listen. If and when you ever get pregnant, if you have a miscarriage, just know that it's really common and people just don't talk about it. And and so whenever I got the call from the doctor, I was like, oh, people don't talk about these things. Yeah. And I'm glad she gave me a heads up that, like, sometimes shit just goes wrong. Yeah. And for no reason, no reason of mine, like, I didn't cause it. Like, my husband didn't cause it. Like, yeah. it, sometimes it just goes wrong. And so I had that context um, that things go wrong sometimes. So I was very grateful. And so I, you know, occasionally whenever I meet someone and we're chatting, I'll just say, you know, or, you know, I often get questions now, like, are you going to have any more? And that was a whole other uh, struggle to figure out, do we want to try, given our past experience? And um, so, you know, I'll just say, like, we, we lost our first baby. And but she's the only person that's ever said, do you want to talk about it? There's such permission and there's such acceptance and there's such normalizing in the asking of that question, yeah. right? Yeah. So Because people think when you don't ask or you don't say – I say this often because people are worried it's going to get uncomfortable or they're going to hurt your feelings or they're going to make you yeah. remember them, which, by the way, we remember them. So bringing it up isn't going to yeah. do something. No. We think – that we're avoiding causing some harm or pain, but in the absence, in the very absence, absence of asking the question or bringing up the topic, you're saying something. Yeah, exactly. You're and, sending a message. You know, and other people have been nice and maybe generally were able to get to the point where they asked a question, but she, from the get-go, said that. And to her credit, she's got a PhD in some form of psychology, I think. So, like, she, she knew to ask. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, which I... I I mean, if I can leave any listeners with one shred of thing is if someone mentions something really hard and uncomfortable to you, maybe just ask if they want to talk about it. If you're in a position where you can hold space and really be there, because she could, you know? Yeah, yeah, she could. I mean, don't be voyeuristic, but if you can. Yeah. And and I want to say, yeah, I hold a master's in social work. You do. But I don't think it takes – that's the myth I want to dispel. Like, I think we all, honestly, for our own – well-being, sort of culturally, collectively, and individually, just all need to get better at doing that asking and at holding that space. Because I think so much of the friction, the divisiveness that we are seeing in this country, and actually we're seeing sort of at a global level, is because we aren't comfortable talking about the hard things. The hard things. 
talking about what makes us uncomfortable, which actually causes us to believe that there's actually a lot more difference between us than there actually is. Oh, yeah. Right? So because we think, oh, it's just me. It's no. only me. It's not them. Or they did that thing, but that's because they're different. And that othering activity, um, as my friend John Powell often likes yeah. to talk about, othering and belonging, actually is causing that sort of unnecessary pain and suffering. Right. And so how we can all become more practiced, and it doesn't take a master's or a PhD to do it. Yeah. At... Um, holding space, being curious, asking questions, yeah. risking. You know, Brene Brown often talks about that sort of like that risk. You can't have courage without vulnerability no. and risk. And so you have, you are going to fail. You are going to yeah. ask a question. You are going to try to be supportive and end up putting your foot in your mouth. You're going to do it. Yeah. We all have done it. By the way, I kind of talk and write and do this for a living, and I do it still sometimes. And we're never going to get more practiced and better find a sense of shared humanity yeah. and connection and belonging if we don't try. Yeah. And we need to stop holding ourselves accountable to some level of perfection, right? That, like, we have to get it right or we just shouldn't try at all. Doesn't like, exist. Doesn't exist. Myth burst, yeah. right? Doesn't no. exist. No. And, I mean, I love her messaging so much that it's it, you're going to try and you're going to fail and it's going to suck and you feel it and you... You dig through this shitty rough draft that you tell yourself when that first happens to yeah. figure out, like, oh, what's underneath this? Like, where's the root of this? Right. And Are there old storylines that old, are showing up in this story? Yeah. And and you do the work. And, you know, when I met her, I, I was struggling to figure out how to come on and do this show even because it was such a vulnerable thing to do. And... You know, one of her bottom lines was like, keep your therapist, keep your therapist, keep going to see your therapist because it's never going to end. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to keep processing. I'm going to keep processing and things can be hard. They can also be really wonderful and encouraging and nice. And I could perhaps get some support from this. Yeah. I could get a lot of really nasty comments, too. And um Yeah. And you're the, we're all the author of our own stories, yeah. and other yeah. people do want to take a pen and a red pen or whatever and yeah. edit our stories. And I think part of our, our work, all of our work, is to figure out who is authoring parts of the stories. Back to the, you know, I said we always have these stories, like, constantly cycling in our head, whether yeah. or not we know it or not. And I think our constant work, I do this on a daily basis when I'm having a feeling, our constant work is to say, uh, who authored that little story floating around yeah. in our head? And does that actually apply to me? And how does that story make me feel? Yeah. Um, and we have a kind of power, you know, of the red pen to sort of edit our own stories. Yeah. It's exhausting to do when oh, you're it's... rebuilding your story, especially after significant loss, because you're already just trying to, like, it feels like start from scratch, right? And yeah. then other people show up. Oh, Speaking sure. of that, how have... Speaking of sort of the rebuilding of our narrative and our story after loss, have you noticed how your own language about how you talk about your loss has evolved oh, over yeah. these last six years? Can you share a little bit about what you've noticed about that evolution of the language? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So whenever um, I first got the diagnosis, I went straight down the rabbit hole of the baby center because they have all these different forums. And I found the one on terminating for medical reasons. Okay. And and a lot of the time I, I would speak about it in that way, you know, because 
it was explaining my experience and it wasn't to me just simple plain abortion like it was right. a wanted pregnancy that Had there medical. were reasons for not continuing and um so the, yeah that was really difficult to to talk about and even like even with that term even presenting at first with that term yeah which, that term. yeah you know i i never um when I eventually, I went out to dinner one night with some girlfriends, and they knew something was off with me. This is, like, shortly right after it happened, but I hadn't told them anything going into it. They didn't know about it all, and then they all reached out that same night or the next day to be like, what? Like, are you okay? What's happening? And I had, I talked to one or two and emailed another one or two, and just putting it down on paper was really interesting to see what came out in terms of explaining what happened yeah how was that for you like just having to name it put it into language put it into writing um it was challenging um i mean it it was all it's all part of the healing process and and it felt better because it was acknowledged but the way you know i was explaining like i never in my life thought i'd ever ever be in the position of like hoping for a miscarriage because I know so many people are that happens to them and like so devastating it's in devastating its own right. as is but you know I was like praying for that and it didn't happen and yeah so I think in terms of language terming for medical reasons was my go-to for for a long time and still is, you know, because yeah. that's the reality of what it was. I know that the clinic that I went to treated me um, with special care, you know. It was a three-day procedure. I was allowed to wait in the back area instead of the waiting room for things, um, mm -hmm. you know. So I know there was a little more, um, I, well, I, I don't know. I, I can't. Say For you, what, that's your experience. That, that was my experience, that it felt like there was a, a little more, um, not hand-holding, but some gentleness around it. Some intention around what is the, how can they actually sort of um, protect causing further harm. Yeah. 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 Did you feel held by the medical community? You know, you've, you've listened to the show, you've heard other people who felt like there were ways in which... Um, the medical community sometimes exacerbates the pain around loss, and and we also hear stories of ways in which it's held and supported. As as the pediatric palliative social worker I had yeah. on, you know, her whole role is to sort of provide additional comfort. Was your experience that you were held kind of? Yes and no. Um, after we did some initial um, testing, the the blood test. I went to see a specialist who did a CVS test, and getting into that appointment was um, very nerve-wracking. It happened during an ice storm here, and the whole shit city shuts down, and there's only a certain amount of... Your window to get in for that particular test is pretty small, and mine it was closing in, and so I called the very morning of the last day I could get in in a panic, like I had to wait the whole weekend to get there because I was supposed to go on a Friday and the city shut down so Monday morning um, they, they made it happen and work and the doctor there was really wonderful and I said to her on my way out 
you're lovely. I hope to never again see you in my life under these circumstances. <laughs> like, right. I never want to see you again. Thank nice you. Nice to see you. Never, ever again. Never Thank again. You. Um, but then even getting the results from that test was a little bit difficult because the initial test came in and it, before I started the procedure, the final test came in like my procedure took two, three days. So it was, well, technically it took two days. There's three visits, three days apart. Um, but the confirmed results came in on day two of day three. So had they been off or different, I could have changed course. And the nurse left me a message as I was in the clinic on day two. And once I called her back the afternoon, the doctor wasn't there. So she wouldn't give me the results over the phone. And I all but, like, tore through my phone at her to say, like, you have no idea what you're dealing with. Get the doctor on the phone. Like This is my information to know, right? In exactly now. Like, yeah. So in that way, I was not supported well and eventually I got the call from the doctor they they remedied it but I I don't know if they truly understood what needed to happen and when and how in that circumstance so yeah, yeah. and you know then after the fact um there was I mean there was a little bit of support oh you know where I did experience some um, um you're not okay is from my GP Whenever, you know, you only see them for 15 minutes right. at a time for the full year. And, you know, and my, she, she just said, you need therapy. Like, you have PTSD. And this was, like, a couple of years after. And I was like, well, yeah, I know I should talk to someone. But, like, don't diminish my loss to, like, having trauma. You know, it's just, I thought... Uh-uh. Yeah, the delivery of that message. The delivery was not very good was at so all. so harmful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's really impossible, too, to couch these really important conversations in these 15-minute windows, yeah. which is so why I think our systems of care are hopefully evolving, and you see that happening in palliative and hospice mm. spaces and mm -hmm. different systems where, you know, we're not going to buck the notion that doctors' times are valued at such a high ticket price unless we totally revolutionize our medical system and how can systems have social workers and yeah. other support services to be able to have those yeah. more extended yeah. conversations that allow for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like, you know, I used a doula for my second baby group and um, through that group they did some loss circles. Yeah. So I went to a few of those of my own. I mean, all my healing has just been kind of self-led. You navigating your way. Yeah. For many who have experienced prenatal or child loss, the birth of another child can feel like such a miracle, such a gift. And it can bring up so many emotions, bringing their grief front and center once again. I asked my guests to share a little bit about their decision to get pregnant again, about how having their daughter has provided some healing, and perhaps reopened old wounds. We said goodbye to our first baby in January, and I was probably I probably got pregnant like the following July. Okay, so S pretty pretty quick, yeah, yeah. and. The decision to even try was 
scary as all hell. Like, because knowing I could potentially happen again was just terrifying. But, I, I, you know, we really wanted to have a family, and we just tried. But the practice that I go to um, or went to... Um, has a rotating um, practice where you see each of the doctors and our midwives throughout your pregnancy because you don't know who you're going to get on call day of when it happens. And so um, I just remember in the early, early days, it wasn't like I was seeing one doctor who gave her, you know, who like helped me through the last pregnancy and who knew my history. Right. It was a different person each time. It was a different person each time. And at the 12-week Mark, maybe I went in and got this real chipper young midwife. She's like, how's everyone doing? And I tried to be as kind as I could, but I think I might have ripped into her, like, could you please read my file and know that my nerves are shot like no other. I don't know which way this is going to go. Like, I'm kind of a basket case here. And and it kind of went that way until we got some reassurance along the way, but I I don't... think I really felt okay until my daughter was born and I had some complications like I had gestational diabetes which was your kind of biggest worry you thought from the first from the first pregnancy yeah Yeah. Yeah. so you know then I then I am coping with like why is my body failing me why did it fail me the first time what's Mm. happening here um which sometimes it just happens and um then my labor with my current daughter was really long and nothing went as planned. I had done hypnobirthing classes I wanted to, I paid for and was going to give birth at the birthing center. And I had to be induced and it was 36 hours and I ended up with an infection. She ended up with an inf- infection. I had to have a C-section last minute, not like running down the hall, but pretty last minute yeah last minute and um then she was in the NICU for 10 days and I had to be discharged from the hospital without taking her home with me that was really difficult I cried the whole way out um so you know in a way losing the first one helped me subsequently and knowing that like sometimes shit just happens and you gotta roll with it and like and that you you've survived yeah the worst yeah the worst and but you know even after bringing my daughter home and you know even i think it's still there a little bit now i have a sense of like here one day gone the next so you know sometimes it's hard for me even to like think about 5 10 years down the road cuz you know on one hand i'm so appreciative and i've never been able to like fully like appreciate the moment for what it is I can do that so much more now than before my loss because we all know life is short but until you get a phone call that immediately changes everything in your life like it's kind of theoretical but right you you don't know what how what it means to sort of live that yeah until you have that phone call or that yeah. experience and you know another reason why i think it's really hard for people to talk to me or about this topic in general is cuz we don't talk about death no 
and what's to come later and except a hundred percent of us are going to experience we're going to go there we're going to experience losing people we're going to die ourselves and we have to let go at some point you know and it's and the really talking hard. about it and the experiencing it to what you were saying and i know you and i've talked about this before I think we, again, back to, this is like what we talked about earlier, that if we speak of it, it's somehow going to manifest something yeah. and it's going to come into the world and that it's going to, quote unquote, bring us all down, yeah. that it's going to make us feel heavy, that it's dark. And you were just alluding to something I've been saying quite often recently, which is it is the attending to and really seeing and holding space for death is coming yeah. we are all going to experience it yeah. that allows you to actually not in theory savor this moment yeah. to savor the fact that we're having this conversation yeah. right now brings me so much joy yeah um the fact that i get to you know go on to have a conversation with somebody else this afternoon just the whole being present to and processing the reality that this each of these moments are a gift yeah um, you know, I think allows us to access the kind of joy and delight and amazement, sort of the trifecta of feelings I yeah. describe often that I think is the gift of having experienced loss. Yeah. Oh, it is the gift. And I, you know, Brene talks about how, like, joy is the scariest of all of the emotions. Yeah. Because we're, we're afraid to feel it because we think we're going to lose it. And the reality is we have to load up on those moments because we can't ever, we can't prepare ourselves for getting the phone call ever. Right. Like, I mean, you think maybe you can, but you can't. So we have to fill up our reservoir with these moments so that we have something to go off of when, when life hands you. I mean, the other the shoe stuff. is going to drop. This is what I say yeah. all the time. Like, the other shoe is going to drop. Yeah. So how do we hold sacred and celebrate and relish the kind of moments of joy. Yeah. And I think that's really an important piece. As much as I talk possibly incessantly in, to my friends and family who may be tired of me hearing this about the need to sort of talk about and experience and attend to the hard emotions on our on the sort of spectrum of our emotions, you know, the pain and the loneliness yeah. and sorrow, and get better at holding them and inviting them in as visitors um, we have to become better at also holding and actually being present for the joy, joy. you know, and the delight. Yeah. As you say, not, none of the emotions on our spectrum are going to stay, yeah. you know, permanently. They all come yeah. and go. And so why not learn how to really savor those moments of joy while they're there? Because savoring them, I think there's a myth that savoring them means it's going to make that other shoe dropping even harder. And I mm. just think that isn't true. Yeah, I think it's actually the shining light that gets us out of the darkness. For me, um, the first time I laughed, mm. for instance, a few months after my husband died, was connected to a memory of times when I was able to actually be present in my joy and my laughter of life. Yeah, And so in many ways, I think about our act of really engaging in joy is sort of putting money in the bank. You know, it's sort of a deposit, too, yeah. for our future selves so that when the other shoe drops and the pain happens, we can recall what it was to feel joy and that, and that life does have joy yeah. in it. 
is there something about this type of loss? We talked a little bit before sort of of that concept of disenfranchised oh, loss. Yeah. Is there more that you want to uncover or explore around what it means to be showing up in the world with a disenfranchised loss? What you've learned about um, that experience? How have you showed up differently for other people who have disenfranchised loss? Is there anything more you want to say on that? I get angry now a lot when um, people will talk about their losses sometimes, and I feel like I can't talk about mine. And and it's hard to explain. Um, like I was explaining to my mom that everyone else can talk about their loss to anyone on the street. And I'm the only person that I know that can't talk about my loss just to any person on the street. She said, well, your dad can't talk about it. And maybe for his own personal reasons, he can't talk about it. But societally and culturally, right. he can. He can say, my, my, dad, parents died. my dad died of a heart attack. My mom was killed in a car accident. Right. To anyone on the street. And there's no shame involved And there's going to be an immediate no response yes. of... Yes. Empathy and sympathy yeah. And, yeah. and understanding. People will yeah. see themselves in his story, maybe. Yeah. 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 And so have you encountered other people who have had, I think you alluded to earlier, you feel in, in many ways your uncle mm-hmm. had that experience as a war vet. Yeah. And you have a friend, it sounds like, who has had Sim- similar, similar loss. Similar loss to mine, yeah. Yeah. What have you seen of their approach to sort of being able to tell or not tell their story and what have been the consequences to that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think you share your story with those who deserve to hear it. And sometimes that can be tricky to figure out who the person is. I, I shared the story of um, our first baby with my aunt who I was really close with. Um, and who I was very close with growing up and um, shared it when we were in the process of making the decision, not after the fact, and asked for, set some very specific boundaries on, like, you know, I don't mind if you share with my uncle. Please don't talk to my cousins. I don't want to be the source of family gossip. Right. And not very not very, oh, what's the word? Why am I choking on this? Um, I'll think of it in a minute. I said, under no uncertain terms, here are my boundaries. And they were crossed. Mm. And I found out later. And so that took quite a bit of time to unpack that betrayal. Yeah. So there was already the harm of and the pain of the grief of the loss. And then there was this unnecessary harm when people weren't. It was the shrapnel. Yeah. It was a shrapnel and and it took me a long time to process that and you know, in therapy terms I was ruminating all the time about it and then I would get so angry at my mom for like not standing up for me and I understand that that relationship was very complex. But, you know, eventually things came out, the hard conversations were had. I got an email. It was like I'm sorry you were hurt 
not I'm sorry for what I did. And so it took me oh, some time. Oh, the passive-aggressive apology, or the half-apology. The half-apology. Yeah. And I think she tried to do it as best she could, I believe. But, you know, they, my mom and her, and that whole generation, I mean, were not raised with the skills to say, I'm sorry, and then that's it. How right. can I help? Like, I messed up. Yeah. And just own it. And yeah. own it. Actually, yeah. my mom can do it. My aunt's not so good. But we eventually had some time and we talked through it and we're on better terms now. But that took a lot of work on my part to get to the place where I could just say, okay, I get it. You're human too. Maybe you didn't mean to hurt me, but you did. And yeah. I'm okay regardless. But it, it wasn't okay. No. What happened? And yeah. That's that's that reminder again. Is it's we can't always know, by the way, who we can trust to tell our story, yeah. and sometimes we learn the hard way who we can and can't trust. Yeah. If if one of our listeners or many of our listeners are someone who has gone through a similar experience, or maybe are right in the throes of possibly having to make some of these decisions, yeah. What do you wish you would have known then? What would you have wanted to hear from someone? I wish someone would have encouraged me, and I don't know if I would have accepted the, it at the time. But I and I and I don't think anyone did. I feel like I would have remembered it. But I wish someone would have said, encouraged me to do something to to make the loss real. Mm. Tell me more about that. So it was just done. And then you move on. There was no... Meaning if it's a loss, a, a different type of loss. You have a funeral. You have a memorial. funeral. You have a memorial. People say that they're sorry. They show up. They show up. No one showed up for me. Like, I know very little about the Jewish religion and customs, but I, I wish someone would come to sit Shiva with me for seven days. You know, like, maybe I would have hated it. I don't know, but, like just the acknowledgement that this happened and that this was a loss that it was a loss and you know because for me it was excruciatingly real for so long I mean but for other people you know we told my our families in Christmas and by February it was over so you know they knew for two months that there was maybe something coming but then that was it and yeah yeah. Everyone else's lives keep going and mine came to a crashing halt and um and so, you know, 5 years later on the anniversary, I decided to find out the name. Well, first I decided to name the baby. I didn't know if I still wanted to know the sex, but I knew I needed to give him or her a name, and so I picked out one that was unisex and even coming to terms with that was really interesting. I mean, who names a baby five years later, you know, like, but, but I, as we've said before, naming and language is so important. It's so important and to I, make real. And I had to make, make it real. And then I made these like, um, cause I didn't want to plant a tree. We're not in our forever home yet or anything. I don't know if we ever will have one, but I wanted something. So I made these stepping stones to put in our garden and I made one for my daughter. And then like two days before or the day of, or, Right before the anniversary, I opened the envelope and found out that it was a little boy. And so that was emotional. But 
um, to like actually know the sex. Um, the name was already set, so but yeah. just you know yeah. like everything you conjure up when you think about a boy just came right up and yeah. then out the door. But um, so I. I told my husband, I, I really want to do something because in previous anniversaries, I had just taken time for myself, you know, like one time I got a massage or just went to a, a coffee shop and like journaled some more and, um, and, but I really wanted to do something. And so I made those, um, stepping stones and, um, my daughter was in school. So my husband and I went out for um, breakfast that morning and then we went and got flowers and I took him to the clinic where it happened because mm. I wrote a, like a, a thank you nice note for the, the staff there because they were so wonderful and um, and then we walked along the river and said some words and and then we went to get massages to take care of our bodies mm-hmm. and ourselves and um, and then after school when we picked up my daughter we put the stones out and she knows I've explained to her now that there was a baby for her, but the body wasn't as strong and didn't make it. And so, I, you know, as she gets older, we'll explore the complexities yeah. and share the story in a, a much deeper way. But, you know, a lot of reason, and one of my main reasons for doing this, too, is, you know, I know I'm risking a little bit of exposure to my family being this vulnerable because... While I'm anonymous, anyone who hears my voice or hears me talk a little bit could probably figure it out. And, you know, that might bring some things up for them. Um, And my story matters, too, you know, because I matter. And I wanted to be a, a model for my daughter, you know. I would never want her to have gone through anything like this and feel like she couldn't be seen or heard for what had happened. Yeah. It's so important what you just reminded all of us, our listeners, and myself included, which is to to honor a moment and to honor this loss by yeah. having it have a ceremony, by having yeah. by bearing witness and whatever that looks like, and in these disenfranchised loss like the one you experience, we so often overlook how is it that we sort of capture and honor this loss in this moment because there are ways in which we don't do that. Um, And so for you to do that, and as you said, for you to model that for your daughter is important because as we started this discussion today, we learn about processing our pain and our grief and our loss in our families. In our families, yeah. And so now your daughter is going to have a very different experience than you had and presumably your husband had around what it means to talk about the hard things yeah. and celebrate the life and the loss. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard as fuck. But I think it's important yeah. for her. For I mean, for me, primarily. I, I'm not doing this for anyone else. Um, it was so helpful for me to read and hear other people's stories. Um just to know I'm not alone and maybe this will serve that for someone else but it's it's for me first and foremost and then all of our work really is to do that right like we have to attend to yeah. 
healing our own hearts so that Before. we don't walk around in the world sort of spreading the pain. Spreading the pain, yeah, because we so much easily, or, or what does Brené say? Um, we spread pain way more than we feel it. Absolutely. It's a lot easier to spread it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier because we're not practiced yeah. at experiencing and welcoming in and learning from our own pain. So our, our knee jerk, and I think there's neurobiology there too, oh, which is, sure. right, is like yeah. hurry up and get away and cover up and dispel and disperse yeah. uh, pain. And that's a really damaging consequence that's happening. And yeah. I think we're seeing that happening yeah. sort of at the global and the national and the personal level. Yeah. Thank you. I think we're also seeing more vulnerability come up. And I do too. We're, we're seeing both, I think. I mean, maybe the light of day is coming and a new way is also coming. I think we are. To your point, you know, if you think about the kind of conversations you're having with your daughter, mm -hmm. they are never the kind of conversations generationally my parents would have had with me oh, yeah. or your parents would have had with you. Yeah. And the fact that we have thinkers, writers, speakers in the world, everyday practitioners who are showing up and being vulnerable and learning the healing and transformative power of that means yeah. there's a new way of, we're all learning a sort of new way yeah. of being in the world. Well, you know, better you do better, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And um, part of why I feel so grateful to have you on this show is that you are practicing that and modeling that, not just for your daughter, but for me um, and for everyone in your life and and now for all the listeners to this show. Yeah. Um, and I want to say to you what I think you're saying to other people, which is I see you mm -hmm. and I hear you thank and I you. am holding you in my heart. Mm -hmm. Thank you. My guest and I share much in common, including our passion for learning from others. We both have an insatiable appetite for books and podcasts around healing, growth, mental health, and so much more. She shared a passage by Cheryl Strayed that has been at the center of her feeling truly seen in her disenfranchised loss. The passage reads, You let time pass. That's the cure. You survive the days. You float like a rabid ghost through the weeks. You cry and wallow and lament and scratch your way back up through the months. And then one day you find yourself alone on a bench in the sun and you close your eyes and lean your head back and you realize you are okay. That's the journey. And that's the journey and... I I heard that and then I read it and I thought, oh my God, you do you lament like no other and you yeah. wallow and you cry and it is a journey and and you're okay too. And for someone to name that reality, to sort of put those words into the world so that you could see yourself so clearly yeah. in her story. Yeah. And that's part of us aerating these conversations yeah. is that so we can see ourselves in each other's stories. Yeah, because we all go through it at some point or other. Like... We're going to all be on that bench. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Yeah, well, and thank you for holding space because, you know, in terms of being able to share with someone 
I think this will be a lot easier for, you know, certain family members to listen to because it's not directly happening with me and they're not bumping up against their own thing if they can listen to it in their own time and space. It's serving a purpose there. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's tricky. It's hard. We're all navigating our own stories and what's okay and to share and what's not. And these are hard things. This has been another incredibly powerful, vulnerable, and important conversation. Grief is already painful and difficult. There is so much in our lives that gets in our way of traveling that journey and being able to feel seen and supported. For those people who are grieving a loss that is judged or denied by others, there is so much additional and unnecessary harm done to them along the way. I'm grateful to her for bringing light into the darkness, for sharing her voice with us, for reminding us that all of us are craving someone to show up and say, I'm sorry this shitty thing happened to you, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thank you for showing up, holding space, and bearing witness to yet another conversation today. If you haven't had a chance to hear the other episodes this season, please head to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. You can get caught up because we have five more incredible episodes coming to you bi-weekly as we close out season one of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Until next time, I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver.